things up here. So, uh, so I feel like I've been here seven months, but I feel like I need to introduce myself. And I'll start by saying I am not Pastor Brian. Now, I, I understand that, you know, we look dangerously similar. I'm just the uglier version of Pastor Brian. And you can tell him I said that because he's a good-looking dude. But here's the thing. You don't see me much. I've been here seven months, but I usually don't pass like this door right here because my whole world is over there because my, my uh, dwelling place is the student ministry. Now, that means a couple things. That means number one is I have a very high tolerance for nonsense, mainly because it, I'm, I'm full of nonsense. Number two, to that point, it means that I'm a child at heart, and I love teenagers. They're just awesome, and they just get me all fired up and excited because they just do crazy and ridiculous things. So here's the thing. I'm sorry if I talk fast because I get really excited, all right? I got some, do- so doctors used to call this ADD. I got ADD, HD, element OP, you know what I'm saying? I love talking fast. I love getting excited. Ooh, squirrel, you know what I'm saying? I, I can't take it. I just get super, super excited because I just love the Lord and I love you guys and I never get to spend time with you adults. So if I've never met you, Hey, I'm Pastor Chandler. It's nice to meet you, but that's enough about me. That's enough about me. My wife is extremely embarrassed right now because she knows what's coming. My wife is destiny. (laughs) Let me tell you something. My butterflies get butterflies when my wife enters the room. She's the most beautiful person in the whole wide world. I love my wife. Here's the thing. If I can't brag on my wife, when people, you know, Nicholas Sparks wants to like film my life and go, oh, he loves his wife. That's so sweet, cute and cuddly and sweet. But if I can't brag on my wife, who when everybody thinks it's sweet, how on earth am I going to brag on Jesus when people despise me? You know what I'm saying? Men, if you don't brag on your wife, then shame on you. And you old guys in the room going, well, that young whippersnapper will get used to it. I pray I never end up like a husband like you because what are you doing? Your wife should be the most beautiful person in your life. Praise the Lord for our wives. Let's give our wives a round of applause. What are we talking about? Oh, my wife. (laughs) I love my wife. Hey, how you doing, sweetheart? I'm sorry. She hates attention. Therefore, I give her attention. All right, so last week, if you were here, last week, if you were here, you heard Pastor Matt. Oh, by the way, I'm not Pastor Matt either. All right, I know I'm bald-headed. I'm not Bo, I'm not Matt, I'm not, let's see, let's go through all the, I think we should change our church name to MMBC, Michael Memorial Bald-Head Church. I mean, seriously, in those gift bags back there, we have razors. We just give to the men. Like, if you're a man, you're like, hey, I'm a visitor here. We're like, okay, here's your razor, now shave your head. Come to Jesus, right? Last week, Pastor Matt talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. He talked about several verses, but I really want to emphasize verses 6 through 9. So uh, we're going we're gonna to continue on past that, but I think it's extremely important that we gain the context of what we're going to talk about this morning. So if you will turn to, uh, let's see here. Uh, there we go. If you'll turn to page 1,329, we'll be in chapter 5. But before we get there, I want to talk about, before we get to what we're gonna, the passage we're going to be studying this morning, I want to bring us up to speed. So last week, Pastor Matt preached on the importance of the future. He said, we we live in this tension, this now-not-yet tension that scholars call it. And we, we 
live for today, but really our, our goal is tomorrow. We live for the future, that we shouldn't be totally focused on the here and now. Now, of course, we live in the here and now. We can't escape the present time. However, our focus should be on the future. We should have an eternal mindset. And at the end of the day, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 9 gives a really incredible explanation to this. It says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. You see, we can have good courage and aim to please the Lord. See, that, the, the concept of aiming is, is pretty funny. So, do we have any deer hunters in the room? Anybody, anybody like to hunt deer? Hunt turkey? I don't know. I don't know what you like to hunt. I know we like to eat turkey. Everybody in here likes to eat turkey, except me. It's way too dry. But if you're a hunter, you know that aiming is extremely important. Now, if you've ever missed what you were aiming at, I want you to raise your hand. Put your hand down. Don't admit that. Hunters, what are you doing? Come on, guys. You're supposed to. My sights were wrong, right? We even changed our sights because the, thing, the idea that we would miss aim is absurd. Why would we do that? I can promise you, I can promise you, next week, Joseph's Home Golf Tournament, you know, I got postponed, which gave me more time to practice. I haven't practiced. But, so, every time I, I, I'm standing, golf ball's here, every time I stand here, I can promise you, I'm aiming in a very clear spot. But if you play golf, I, I trust that you have the same golf balls I have, and it's a bad brand. They go not where you aim, but where you hit them. That's a major problem. So you would think there's this fairway that's literally like the size of this room, and you aim like in the middle of it. I'm like, oh, well, if I aim in the middle, then I should be. No, no, no. Everybody's standing behind me going, was this supposed to go that way? Shut up, all right? I'm just trying my best. But aiming is an interesting thing because it's really, when we look at golf and we look at hunting, aiming is not the, is not the goal. That's really, that's really uh, just how we get to the landing. Where your shot lands, that's what's important, right? If, you, if you're playing basketball and you shoot, well, you, if the ball leaves your hands, I, I trust that you hope it's going in. But if it misses, well, guess what? That's a failure. Well, when it comes to our Christian walk, it's, it's not where we land, but it's, it's where we aim. It's a little bit different. A little bit different. And what we can be thankful for is that God does not judge us based on where we aim. I mean, based on where we land, but where we aim. Because the truth of the matter is, if God judged us based on where we landed, well, we would be in a heap of trouble. We would be in a heap of trouble. See, this morning we're going to be talking about how God looks at our hearts. We're going to be talking about how we should have a pure ministry, a pure following and servanthood of King Jesus. So I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Before we do that, I want us to, want us to pray. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Lord, we pray that you will bless our time. Most importantly, that you will be proud of what we do. God, that everything that we would do this morning would be from a pure heart, which is exactly what your word teaches us. Pray that you'll remove distractions as there's so many that may be going through our minds, maybe in this room, out of this room, whatever those might be. 
Pray that you will open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to understand your word better this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. See, no one will escape the judgment of this life. No one will escape the judgment of this life. Once again, back to our illustration that if you, if you aim and you constantly miss, well, then the truth is you're, you're not good at what you're doing. But to go even deeper, if you go hunting and you don't take bullets, well, you're not really hunting. If you go to play golf, yet you never swing the club, you're, you're, not, you're not actually playing golf. You're just kind of there. Well, in our lives, we can't be just neutral. That doesn't happen. That's impossible. We can't live a neutral, stagnant life. That's not possible. We make decisions each and every day. Several of you in here have made the decision to listen this morning. Some of you have decided to daydream, and none of you have decided to take a nap. But we make decisions all day. I'm kidding. Wake up. So we, we make decisions each and every day. All day long, we make decisions. Guess what? Tomorrow, when you go to work, decisions. When you leave work, decisions. When you're at work, decisions. Men have this beautiful thing called a nothing box. And what we can do, and I know women, calm down. Women are like, what is he talking about nothing box? You know what I'm talking about. So you can go in this place of nothingness. And it's a beautiful place. And when you've really mastered it, you can answer in the nothing box. You can sit there and zone out and you just think about nothing. And my wife says, what do you mean you think about nothing? I say, well, I'm thinking about nothing. And I sit there say, uh-huh, yes, uh-huh, yeah. I'm telling you, that's called master of the nothing box. But even in the nothing box, we're still living life. We still make decisions. We're still there. We're still existing. So if we all will live lives and we all will do things and we will all be aimed in a specific direction... And we're all going to do good, we're going to do bad. But verse 10 is extremely clear that no one is an exception to the judgment seat of Christ based on our lives. The natural and logical response to this would be to do what's necessary to be found innocent before this judgment seat. It doesn't take much study of the Bible to find out that God's judgment's no joke. It's no joke. This is the God who flooded the entire earth. This is the, this is the same God who destroys nations. This is, this is the all-powerful God who speaks and things come to existence. God is all-powerful in his judgment is no joke. Well, there's good news and there's bad news. And we'll start with the good news. The good news is God is a righteous judge. So when we say, well, God is a judge, he's all-powerful, he makes all the decisions, well, I would want a righteous judge. And we can trust that God is perfect and that he is righteous and he is the best judge possible 
Because when he identifies himself in the Old Testament to Moses, Moses says, who are you? He says, I am. He doesn't say, I'm a good judge. He doesn't say, I'm God. He doesn't say, I'm gracious, I'm holy, I'm merciful. He doesn't say any of those things. Why? Because if he said, I'm God, well, then we would have an exterior definition of God, and God would have to meet that criteria, right? God would have to meet justice. If God said, I'm a righteous judge, he said, I'm just. I'm just. Well, we would say, okay, what is just? Okay, that must be what God does. No, but it's quite the opposite. You see, justice is what God is. Justice only is when compared to the character of God. Goodness is only good because it's compared to the character of God. That's it. God's the standard of all reality. He is God Almighty. But Almighty is Almighty because that's what God is. His word speaks several places. Deuteronomy 32, chapter 4, of the perfectness of God. It says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. Matthew 5, 48 says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. God makes no mistakes in his judgment. He sends nothing out to jury. He reads no laws other than his own, which is simply a representation of his heart and his character. He's the perfect balance between gracious and merciful and wrathful. He's the perfect balance of knowing when and how to come to the perfect verdict. God is a righteous judge. Am I talking too fast? Okay. Everybody good? Everybody awake? Y'all good? Hey, I'm glad you're here. Really, I, I really am glad you're here. All right, the bad news is there's nothing good in us. See, I had, to, I had to open this up with I love you and I'm glad you're here. But there's nothing good in us. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing good in us. Our hearts are bent towards practicing evil. We love sinning. God's okay with hearing that. He knows. He sees our hearts. He knows. We love sinning. We do. We do. Our natural inclination is to sin. I have two sons, Thomas and Caleb. Thomas is two. And, and Caleb, you know, Caleb's one. He, he's, or he's about to be one in a few weeks. He's not really sure what's going on in the world. But Thomas, let me tell you, he is well aware of what's going on in the world. And he is well aware of just how fun sinning really is. I'm telling you, I mean, that is an evil little joker. I love him to death. I do. People are going, oh, my goodness, do you love your kid? Oh, I love him tremendously. But he is so evil. I mean, he just does things. I'm like, what, what is wrong with you? Whose are you? And my wife goes, he's yours. I say, oh, that makes sense. But listen, the other day, this is how evil he is. This is how sinful he is. And I didn't teach him this, but he is a savage. I mean, he's a savage. The other day, he bumped his head on a chair in our dining room, right? He bumps his head. He comes in there, he's screaming, ah, blah, 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 blah. You know, he says, Daddy, the chair hit me. I'm like, what are you talking about? The chair doesn't even have arms. It doesn't have arms. It has legs, but it doesn't have arms. I said, the chair can't hit you. It has four of them. So I said, well, I, I'm sorry, baby. He turns around. I promise I'm not making this up. God is my witness. He walks to the chair, looks at the chair and says, no chair, and bends down and bites the chair. He bit the chair right on the side. He's, his head was shaking. He was like, ah. he like, a, he like, a, like the rat tears I had growing up because, you know, we grew up in Byram. You know what I'm talking about? We had squirrel dogs. Anybody? 
We had rat terriers, rat terriers for the win. So we had rat terriers, and they used to get on like a, you know, they were squirrel dogs, but they used to get on like a big animal or a big dog, and they were not scared of anything. And so they bite, and they're like hanging. In the, that's how Thomas was on that chair. He was biting. You know, I said, Thomas, what? And he hit the chair. No chair. And he comes over to me, and I'm like, how do you even process this as a parent? Where's the book on this? I'm like thumbing through all my parenting books. I'm going, there is no child psychologist that explains biting chairs. All right, good. So my child is the exception. Praise God. He's more evil than everyone else. So no, he's not. He's just, you know, he's at least cute. He's got that going for him. Our hearts are bent towards evil. I didn't teach my son to bite anything, much less the chair. He's just mad. I don't know where he gets that anger from. Shut up. Can I say shut up? I'm sorry. This is not teenagers. Can I say, is that a bad word in here? I'm sorry. I'm glad glad you're gracious to me. All right, so Isaiah 59, chapter 59, verses 7 and 8 say this. Their feet run to evil. They are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no justice in their past. They have made their roads crooked. No one treads on them who knows peace. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Until we are out of this sin-stained flesh, we will always be in an inner battle. We will always be fighting this desire to sin. Because the truth of the matter is when we are born, we love to sin. There's nothing good in us. Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. Anybody ever been there? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Amen, right? Holy, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. This sin-stained flesh completely wrecks our whole being. And the truth is, left to ourselves, we're way more evil than we think. We are way more evil than we think. How often do we see a horrendous school shooting? And we gasp at that. We say, oh my goodness, that's terrible. And it is terrible. But, but let's be honest. It's, it's God's gracious hand that keeps it from happening every day. We're just that evil. Early in Romans chapter 1, Paul gives us a whole list of what happens when God removes his hand, it says in chapter 1, verses 28 through 32, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Pause. That is the single scariest thought ever. 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 God gave humans, us, me and you, people like us, he gave them over to their sin. Let's see how that turned out. Everybody ready? It's pretty gross. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
Though they do not know, though they do know the righteous decree of God, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Left to ourselves, we are way more evil than we ever thought. We will face the judgment seat of Christ. If these realities are true, that no one escapes judgment, God's a righteous judge, and nothing's good in us, then we have a serious problem. And I want you to notice that all these evil acts, they come from the heart and mind. They come from who we are. God, the Bible doesn't say anywhere that the people just did bad things. No, he said that they are bad people. You see, God didn't just give them the freedom to behave the way they wanted to. He gave them the freedom to think how they want to. When they thought and felt how they want to, guess what? Evil naturally happened. See, God is concerned with who we are. God is concerned with who we are. That's your next blank. It is, um, oh, there we go. Somehow these got out of order. God is concerned with who we are. Let's continue to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. It says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer to those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. This word, therefore, serves as a, as a verbal Velcro, if you will, and so it takes one side and takes another side, slaps them together, therefore, so when we see the word therefore, we have to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? That's a very simple hermeneutical approach that we should all make sure that if we see a, a verse on Instagram or whatever, Pinterest, I don't know, and you see therefore, you see, well, let me go get my Bible and see what it says right before that, because the therefore, it matters. So, the, uh, the therefore, this verbal Velcro, because that is true, then this must be true. And because the judgment seat of Christ is impending, and because we will all face that judgment, therefore, what's next? Therefore, it is true that our reaction to the judgment of Christ is completely dependent upon our fear of the Lord. See, Paul's response to that we would aim to please, and in our aiming, we all will be judged based off where we, where we are and who we are and what we do. Well, Paul says, well, I've got to go and tell others. I've got to go and persuade others. We can understand a healthy fear of the Lord all throughout the Bible. We can, under, we can see uh, positives and negatives. One commentator writes, this is the bottom line of Paul's ministry, his reaction to the fear of the Lord. And how we share our faith will tell, me what you, what, will tell us what we believe about God's judgment and God's mercy. I mean, seriously, let's just think about it. If we have the cure to cancer and we keep it to ourselves, well, that's... that's that tells me what you think of other people. And if we're not going and fearing the Lord and recognizing, well, I'm going to be judged for what I do, but, but what, what's even worse is I know the truth, and so, so what's even worse is there are people who don't know the truth, and, and they're going to be judged. Well, if you accurately and adequately fear the Lord, well, your only response would be to go and persuade others. Jonah's a perfect example of this, or to, of not of this. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and we know the story. He says, go to Nineveh and preach repentance. Their sin has come up against me, come up before me. And so Jonah, he doesn't, 
He doesn't go, but not only does he not go, he actually runs away, and he goes and pays money to get on a ship and go to Tarshish. And when he goes to Tarshish, we, we know that the boat does some crazy things and threatens to break up, right? And, and they end up throwing him overboard because Jonah recognizes his sin, and so they throw him overboard, and we're like, oh, awesome, he's getting the idea. And so they throw him overboard, and when he gets in the water, a fish swallows him up in the belly of a whale. He gets in Sheol, which he calls it. So he calls Sheol in the belly of the whale, which is, we don't fully know, but what we can guess and what from what we can sort of understand is that it's, it's basically the depths of hopelessness. Jonah had reached the point of no hope because he had disobeyed the word of the Lord. And so whenever he gets spit back out, I'm sure it was really gross. And so he, so he gets out on the thing and he says, all right, well, for one, let me take a shower. Two, let me, let me go and now I'll obey the word of the Lord. He goes to Nineveh and what does he do? He preaches repentance and the people repent. And you would expect that Jonah would be super thrilled, super excited. He would run around and clap his heels together and just throw a party. no. No, that's not what he does. He goes and sits on a hillside and he pouts. And he gets mad. And he says, Lord, I knew you were merciful and that's why I didn't want to go tell him. How much do we hate people to not share the gospel with them? Lord, forgive us. Jude, in his verse 26, at the end of his, end of his letter, he, he says that, that we might be merciful to those who don't believe, maybe snatching some from the fire. It's like giving a gift, it's the thought that counts. And if we have an adequate and accurate fear of the Lord, how can we do anything? But as people walk into hell, they got to get through us first. See, this tells us what we do will match who we are. What we do will match who we are. Paul understood that he wasn't just doing these things. He wasn't just doing ministry. I trust that there's tons of us, tons of us in here who do wonderful and mighty works for Jesus. Do great and beautiful things. Great and beautiful ministry. But Paul says that he wasn't just doing those things because that's what he's supposed to do or because that's what his dad did or what his family did. He wasn't, he wasn't doing it because of that. He was doing it because it was to his being, it was the core of his person, it was the chief seat of his soul, was to fear the Lord and tell others. His existence was totally founded in his redeemed heart. Paul was confident in his ministry in the face of doubters. He faced so much persecution, so much doubters, and, and so many problems all through his ministry, but he could confidently say that what I am is known to God. This is not a new explanation in this letter. Paul really writes on this several times in this letter, and we've, we've talked about it before. In chapter 3, he says, in verses 1 through 6, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, some, as some do, a letter of recommendation or to you or from you? You yourselves are our, our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all, that you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul could have confidence in his ministry because it was founded in Christ. And I trust that in all of us and the good things that we do in the ministry that we might do and the good actions that we might do that, 
that we would judge ourselves and we would look at ourselves and really take some inventory and say, well, why am I doing these things? And do I stand before God say that God is my witness, that my ministry is 100% solely for his glory and for his kingdom because I fear the Lord's judgment. Such a fear drives me to a love for him. Conscience comes up again. We talked about conscience several, several, I guess that was several months, a few months ago now. Doesn't seem like it, but several months ago we talked about, Pastor Tony preached on conscience and he and I'm not going to go all into the conscience idea, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful, wonderful message. If you haven't heard it, you need to go back and listen to it. But, but conscience comes up, and Paul says, not only will I stand before the Lord, but I'll stand before men and know that to your conscience, you know full well what I'm doing is from the purest heart motive I can possibly have because I love you. He understood, he understood that not only was he doing works for the Lord, but he had an importance to reach people. And if what we're doing does not send the message of we mean it, then you might as well not do it. Chapter 4, when he talks about conscience, is therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul is purely motivated by his fear of the Lord and would stand before God and would stand before men and say, test what I'm doing because I mean it. See, God always sees our hearts and he's not fooled by behavior. Paul's chief concern is the heart of the people there in the church in Corinth. And he said repeatedly in this letter that he's not speaking to behavior, but he's speaking to their hearts. He is concerned with what they're doing, but only to the point that what they're doing is a result of who they are. We can look in the history of Israel and see that this is a major problem in history, in, in, in Israel's history, but also really in our lives as well. I mean, y'all remember in, in Samuel, in 1 Samuel, when they chose Saul as king? Anybody remember how they chose Saul as king? Remember, they said, all right, God, we want a king to look like the other nations. Now, pause, remember that God had chosen the nation of Israel so that they would look differently than the other nations, so that they would draw people, that God could draw people to himself through them, that they would look differently. But they said, no, we want to look like everyone else, because that makes sense, right? So they go and say, all right, everybody, all the men come around. We're going to pick a king. We're going to pick a king. And they said, all right, let's see here. They're looking, they line everybody up, and they they look and say, well, you're kind of short. You're kind of pudgy. I don't know. They said that. I feel, they, I feel like they probably did. You're, yeah, you're, you're kind of old. You're kind of young. You're, they're going down the line, and they get to Saul. Saul's a stud. Head and shoulders taller than everybody else. Probably like Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, he's just massive. Just a massive guy. Big burly guy. He's a man's man. We know how that turned out. So praise God. God takes over the election process next time. And God goes to Samuel and he says, Samuel, I want you to go pick the new king. I'm going to pick the king and I'm going to tell you who it is. So he goes to the house of Jesse. And what do they do? The same thing. 
They look at the outward appearance. Jesse says, I got a bunch of sons. Yeah, yeah, my, son, my sons be the king. That's awesome. And so he goes and lines them up, and he says, all right, boom, 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 boom. And Samuel's sitting there. Samuel's going, no, 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 no. He said, are you, are you sure you don't? Are you sure you don't have any more sons? He said, well, yeah, I mean, I got David out there. Oh. And David comes walking up, you know, and he's young, he's ruddy, he's out there playing his harp, you know. He's a man's man, he's out there playing his harp. You know, he's doing his thing. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know. I mean, clearly he, clearly he was not the first choice by any man. And Samuel goes, that's him. That's him. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, Jesus mentions purity in heart in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been preaching, I've been preaching a series of Sermon on the Mount and on Wednesday nights with the student ministry and the Sermon on the Mount really kind of serves as a kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven economy, and so the Beatitudes do at least. And so when we go through the Beatitudes, we can see, well, this is how citizens of the kingdom of heaven behave. This is how they act. And so we can go through that list of, of, of characteristics and heart matters. He doesn't say really anything about what people are doing, but he talks about who they are and who they are in their perspective to God. And he gets to purity in heart. And he says in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, in my study for that, I came across this quote by D.A. Carson. It's a long quote, so bear with me. But my goodness has this challenged my heart. Man, this has challenged me to my core. And I'll be honest. Can pastors be honest? Is that all right? I don't like the answers. D.A. Carson writes, Purity of heart must never be confused with outward conformity to rules. Because it is the heart which must be pure, this beatitude questions us with awkward questions like these. What do you think about when your mind slips into neutral? How much sympathy do you have for deception, no matter how skillful? For shady humor, no matter how funny? To what do you pay constant allegiance? What do you want more than anything else? What and whom do you love? To what extent are your actions and words accurate reflections of what is in your heart? And what is, to what extent do your actions and words constitute a cover-up for what's in your heart? Our hearts must be pure, clean, and unstained. See, it's almost like when somebody says, hey, no offense, but, pause, okay, no, you're going to offend me, all right. <laughs> if you say no offense, hey, listen, I'm just telling you, no offense, but the truth is, all right, stop, whoa, 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 whoa. One, don't say no offense because you're about to offend me. Two, you should always tell the truth. So it's, it, our hearts must be pure, our motives must be pure. Because citizens of the kingdom of heaven have the accurate heart behind our behavior. Our lives look very similar in a lot of ways. Very similar in a lot of ways, but God knows our hearts. Ultimately, it comes down to our identity. That our only identity is Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15 says, For if we are beside ourselves... 
It is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, for Christians, to live at all is to live for Christ. To live at all is to live for Christ. We're saved from slaves to sin to servants of King Jesus. And the love of Christ is our foundation for life, and all that we do is from that very basis. Timothy, early in his ministry, gets a letter from Paul, who is his father in the faith. And he says, he, he writes all these, these instructions for the church and t- telling Timothy how to lead the church there in Ephesus where he left him. And Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him the honor and eternal dominion forever. You see, Paul understood that Timothy needed to know that anything and everything he would possibly do is dictated by love for Christ. His whole identity is Christ. His whole identity. And so we have to look at ourselves and say, okay, well, as a husband, Christ, that's my identity. I'm not a husband who's a Christian. I'm a Christian husband. Work, Americans, whatever it is, I don't know. How many different identifications could we apply across this room? But as Christians, if our number one identity is not Christ and everything else we do is in light of that, then we've got it all wrong. We're doing ministry and we're doing good works and we're going to church. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 that he will tell us, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I did not know you. All the while they're saying, Jesus, didn't we, didn't we prophesy in your name and work miracles in your name? And didn't we do things in your name? And he says, the problem is I never knew you. And what you're saying is, didn't we, when you should be saying, didn't he? As Paul says that he has to be controlled by the love of Christ because here's his conclusion. Here's his conclusion. He says, this is, I know, trust me, I wish, I wish, I can be honest with you, I wish this wasn't true. I wish I could control me. I do. I wish I could control me. That would be really nice. It wouldn't be nice for everyone else, and ultimately it wouldn't be nice for me. But I, I would love to be able to control me. But Paul knew that the, lo- that the love of Christ, in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ died for all people that will face his judgment, and a love of Christ completely controls us that accept that payment and salvation. 
The love of Christ must control everything we do all the way down to who we are. I don't have to remember to be a human being. I am a human being. When I walk in my house and my kids come screaming, Daddy, 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 I don't have to remember that I'm a father. I am a father. It's who we are. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. John 3.16 and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Titus 3, verses 3 through 8. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may carefully devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. If, if our lives in Christ, if Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection does not completely control us, then we've got it all wrong. We've got it all wrong to live as Christ. To live is Christ. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Well, it means first that we must be found in Christ and be born again. Because see, this morning there's some of you in here that you don't, you don't identify yourself in Christ. You don't. And I can tell you that you can try to behave in every way that I've explained this morning, every way that God's Word says this morning, and you will always find yourself flat on your face because you're not going to be able to do it. And I don't say that because I hate you. I say that because I love you. And I can tell you right now that I've tried, I have tried, I tried for years, years to obey this book, and I'm telling you right now, it's not possible. It's not possible. Because my gosh, are we sinful. The only innocence found before the judgment seat of Christ is in the judge himself. And the beauty of it is the, ju- the judge is, is King Jesus, and he's such an awesome judge that he can, he can not only sit on the judgment seat, but he can also be the one being judged all at the same time. And so what he says is, I'll tell you what, the verdict is guilty. The verdict is guilty. Remember, he's a perfect, righteous judge. And he says, there's nothing good in you, guilty. And all the while he stands before us and goes, I'm guilty. Why would he do that? I have no idea. Other than he loves us. Number two, we must give him our entire lives. Yes, even our hearts. Our hearts are so wickedly evil as we've talked about this morning. And I hope that you walk out of here saying, yes, my heart is evil. But praise God that he takes it anyways. God walks into an adoption agency and he says, I want the dead one. It's crazy. 
It's crazy. He picked me dead in my sin and said, I'm going to use him. <laughs> What's he thinking? What's he thinking? He took me, a selfish, rude, stupid sinner who sins, sins against Almighty God who speaks things into existence and created me perfectly and made... Pure hearts result in pure motives, which results in pure ministry. Paul was so confident in his ministry. Why? Because he knew that God was the the foundation, that Christ is the foundation of his ministry. Last but certainly not least, we must persevere. Serving the Lord is a marathon, not a sprint. Jesus is worth it. When we feel like slowing down or maybe even stopping, remember that he'll give you the strength to press on. That in ministry, just as Paul says, he says that, he says, look, I've concluded that Christ died for all and he died for me and with him I died and with him I I live and and to live with him doesn't mean that it's today or doesn't mean it's tomorrow. It means that it's my eternity. And we begin, na- we begin eternity now. And so what we do is we serve Christ now and we have the sinful flesh that we battle. But, but we look forward to, just as Matt talk- Pastor Matt talked about last week, that we look forward to the day to where we don't have to fight this sinful flesh. Because, can, I mean, I'm just telling you, I hate this flesh. My gosh, I hate it. Back to aiming, the aim of our lives is to purely serve King Jesus. Paul was not confident in himself, but Christ in him. In our service to the King, do we have an undying devotion and loyalty to act and behave according to the love of Christ, who has saved us into eternal life? It's the question we have to ask. And how often do how often do we not like that answer? How often do we, do we ask, that, ask that question? Do we look ourselves in the mirror and say, are you honest? Are you honest? Do we look ourselves in the mirror and say, you're doing a lot of really good things, but why are you doing those? You give tons of money, but why are you giving it? You spend tons of time at the church, but why are you spending it? You tell a lot of people about Jesus, but why are you telling them? If it's not because of a complete control of the love of Christ, then we've missed it. 